Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. Good evening. Tonight, I thought we'd do something a little different and um, we'll focus on a man, an officer no less, who was recommended for the Victoria Cross. Though he did not get it, I think that's enough of an excuse to talk about him. Now, he does get across the line, kind of, sort of. <laughs> but uh, I thought it, he wrote an account. He was one of the... Uh, one of five officers that was able to make it out of Isandawana from the last episode. So, and he writes a very good memoir, and um, there's a terrific extract which gives a terrific detail to the battle. But it was simply too big to use, and I didn't want to chop the whole thing up. So I thought, well, I'll stick it in my back pocket and I'll just put it on as an addendum afterwards. And um, so, yes, so that's the main reason I'm doing it this way. And of course, as you've probably worked out by now, uh, listening to me, I chop and change formats all the time. So this is what we're doing tonight. Now, the man's name is Horace Smith Dorian, and he was born at Hare's Foot, a house near Berkhamsted, just off the A4 if you're in the neighbourhood, uh, in the village of Hertfordshire village probably uh, county perhaps i don't know it's all british to me uh to colonel robert algernon smith dorian my god that's a british name isn't it <laughs> very british and his wife mary ann drever uh he was the 12th son of 16 oh, poor mary <laughs> his eldest brother was thomas algernon smith dorian smith my God, <laughs> and who was also the Lord Proprietor of the Isle of Skilly, which is a small little islet off the tip of Cornwall, for those who are interested. Get on with it, hard bottle. Right, okay. He was educated at Harrow, and on the 26th of February in 1876, he decided that the Royal Military College at Sandhurst was for him. So... On graduation of the Royal Military College in 1877, he had hoped to receive an infantry commission with the 95th Rifle Brigade, but instead received one with the 95th Derbyshire Regiment of Foot, later to become known as the Sherwood Foresters, and a few others, and they've tossed quite a few names as they've amalgamated with other units over the years and through the Second World War and the First World War, and I believe they're now called uh, the Mercian Regiment. So I don't think Mercy is in existence anymore. I think I think it's all 
come together into one country now from memory. But anyway, I'm sure there's a reason for it. And fresh from the military college, from where he was posted, he was sent on detachment on the 1st of November in 1878 uh, to South Africa, of all places, where he was employed as a transport officer. And he he was sent off to Rourke's Drift. Uh, now... <laughs> So this is the poor poor lad. He's just become an officer. He's only a fairly young man, and um, this is his first posting. So yes, um, it's a terrific account. So if you've not heard the account, if you haven't listened to the other episode, you can listen to this first, and then uh, perhaps it'll help um, working out exactly what happened in the overall battle sort of thing. But just remember that you're only seeing the battle from the perspective of this one man. But he does do a very good account of his position in it. So without further ado, I'll start reading the um, the extract that I took from his memoirs. And I think they're particularly well written. Now, some memoirs are as dry as a you know, mummy's coffin. And um, this one I thought was very well written. And he, he's got quite a bit of dash about him. So here we go. By the 19th of January in 1879, the force consisting of two battalions of the 24th, one battery of Royal Artillery, one company of Royal Engineers and MT, and eight locally raised units were ready at Rourke's Drift astride the Blood River and, moving forward next day some 10 miles, it camped that night on the east of that remarkably shaped and ill-starred hill called Isandwana, which literally means Little Hand. Erroneously called by some Isandula. Some of the transport with an escort did not arrive until the morning of the 22nd. I was in charge of the transport depot at Rock's Drift and had been warned before starting that I should have to return there at once to Isandwana with a convoy of empty wagons to bring up more stores, so I left my camp kit in a tented wagon at Rourke's Drift. At about midnight I was sent for by Lord Chelmsford, and told to take a dispatch back to Rourke's Drift for Colonel Durnford of the Royal Engineers, who was expected there with reinforcements, consisting of native levies. I rode back 10 miles, arriving at Rourke's Drift, and just before dawn on the 22nd, and delivered my dispatch. It ought to have been a very jumpy ride. I was entirely alone and the country was wild and new to me, and the road little better than a track. But there was pride at being selected to carry an important dispatch, and the valour of ignorance. For I only realised next day that the country was infested with hostile Zulus, carried me along without a thought of danger. Colonel Durnford was just moving off with his levies towards Sandspruit, away from the Isandawana, but reading the dispatch, which conveyed instructions to move up and to reinforce Isandawana camp, as Lorne Chelmsford, with the main body of force, leaving the camp standing, was moving out some miles to the east to attack the Zulu army. He had at once changed the direction of his march. I had several arrangements to make for transport at Rourke's Drift, amongst others the erection of a gallows, 
This gallows was some 15 feet high, and the process consisted of cutting hides of bullocks into strips about one inch wide, working in a circle. The strips then had the appearance of the peel of an apple all coiled up, and in order to be fashioned into straight straps, had to be passed over the gallows and through a weighted wagon wheel below. These strips then worked over the gallows and through the wheel, stretched and rubbed with fat along the curves that were lost, resulting in very long soft strips of hide that could eventually be cut into lengths for tying to the horns of oxen and head ropes. It was interesting to relate that the first use I saw of the gallows uh, to be put was the hanging of the Zulus, who were supposed to have behaved treacherously the day of the Rourke's Drift fight. After starting the gallows, I went to see Captain Gonny Bromhead, in command of the company of the 24th. I told him a big fight was expected and that I wanted revolver ammunition. He gave me 11 rounds and hearing heavy guns over at Asandwana, I rode off and got into the camp at about 8am. Just as Colonel Durnford's force arrived, Colonel Durnford was having a discussion with Lieutenant Colonel Pauline of the 24th, who had been left by Lord Chelmsford in command of the camp. Lord Chelmsford and all the troops, including the 2nd of the 24th, had gone out to attack the Zulus. Lieutenant Colonel Pauline's force consisted of six companies of the 1st of the 24th. Two guns under Brevet Major Smith and Lieutenant Curling and some native levies. As far as I could make out, the gist of Colonel Durnford and Pauline's discussion was that the former wished to go out and attack the Zulus, whilst the latter argued that his orders were to defend the camp and that he could not allow his infantry to move out. Colonel Durnford and his rocket battery under Russell Royal Artillery were mounted on Bastudos under Cochrane of the 32nd, then rode off towards a small hill, apparently a spur on the main range and about 1.5 miles from the camp. Of the 24th, one company, Lieutenant Cavay, was on picket at the site of the camp and about a mile to the north of the main range. We could hear heavy firing in this direction even then, at 8am, this company was reinforced later by two more, Mostens and Dysons, and the three fell back fighting at about noon and covered the north side of the camp. The remaining three companies present, for two under Major Upcher and Lieutenants Clemens, Paynes and Heaton and Lloyd, only reached Helmaker on the 22nd from the old colony and were extended around the camp in attack formation, covering especially the front and the left front. Two battalions of native levies were also in this line, but they were not to be relied upon and were feebly armed, only one man in ten being allowed a rifle, lest they should desert to the enemy. In consequence of the heavy firing to the north, and the appearance of large numbers of Zulus on the main range of the hills and in the party, and partly, I believe, to support Colonel Durnford's movements, the line was pushed out onto a curve, but to no great distance from the tents. Further than this, it never went. 
Our two guns were at the same time pushed out into the firing line to the northeast of the camp. At about 12 p.m., the Zulus, who had apparently fallen back behind their hills, again showed in large numbers, coming down into the plain and over the hills with great boldness. And our guns and our rifles were pretty busy for some time, causing the Zulus to fall back again and again. It was difficult to see exactly what was going on, but firing was heavy, and it was evident now that the Zulus were in great force, for they could be seen extending, throwing out their horns, as it were, away across the plains to the southeast, apparently working towards the right rear of the camp. As far as I can make out, Colonel Durnford, with his force, never actually left the plain, but was close under the foot of the small spur. He originally lent he originally went to seize. Nothing of importance occurred, of course, beyond the constant increase of the Zulus and the spreading out of their horns until about 1pm. When they started their formation movement direct on the camp, our troops were in the positions that they had occupied hours before, our two guns busy throughout shelling the enemy. 45 empty wagons stood at the front of the camp, which I was to have taken to Rourke's Drift for supplies early in the morning, but which had stopped until the enemy could be driven off. These wagons might have at any time formed into a lager, but no one appeared to appreciate the gravity of the situation. So much so, so that no steps were taken until late to issue extra ammunition from the large reserves we had in the camp. I will return to the advancing Zulu lines at about 1pm. It was a marvellous sight, line upon line of men, in slightly extended order, one behind the other, firing as they came along. For a few of them had firearms, bearing all before them. The rocket battery, apparently, then only a mile to our front, was firing, and suddenly it ceased. And presently, we saw the remnants of Durnford's force, mostly mounted pursuitos, galloping back to the right of our position. What had actually happened, I don't think we shall ever know accurately. The ground was intersected with dongas, and in them, Russell with his rocket battery was caught, and none escaped to tell the tale. I heard later that Durnford, who was a gallant leader, actually reached the camp and fell there fighting. And now the Zulu army, having swept away Durnford's force, Flushed with victory, moving steadily on to where the five companies of the 24th were lying down, covering the camp. They were giving vent to no loud war cries, but to a low, musical, murmuring noise, which gave the impression of a gigantic swarm of bees getting nearer and nearer. He was a more serious matter for these brave warriors, for the regiment opposed to them were no boy recruits but war-worn, matured men, mostly with beards, and fresh from a long campaign in the old colony, where they had carried everything before them. Possessed of splendid discipline and sure of success, they lay in their positions, making every round tell. So much so, that when the Zulu army was only 400 yards off, it wavered. After the War of the Zulus, who were delightedly... After the war... The Zulus, who were a delightfully naive and truthful people, told us that the fire was too hot for them, 
and that they were on the verge of retreat, when suddenly the fire slackened, and on they came again. The reader will ask why the fire slackened, and the answer is, alas, because with thousands of rounds in the wagons, 400 yards to the rear, there was none in the firing line. All those had been used up. I will mention a story which speaks for the coolness and the discipline of the regiment. I, having no particular duty to perform in the camp, when I saw the whole Zulu army advancing, had collected camp stragglers, such as artillerymen in charge of spare horses, officers, servants, sick, etc., and had taken them to the ammunition boxes, where we broke them open as fast as we could and kept sending out packets to the firing line. In those days, the boxes were screwed down and it was a very difficult job to get them open. And it was owing to this battle that the construction of the ammunition boxes was completely changed. When I had been engaged at this for some time and the first of the 24th had fallen back to where we were, the Zulus followed closely. Bloomfield, the quartermaster of the 2nd of the 24th, said to me in regard to the boxes, I was then breaking open, for heaven's sake, don't take that man, for it belongs to the battalion. And I replied, hang it all, you don't want a requisition now, do you? It was about at this time, too, that the colonel named Dubois, a wagon conductor, said to me, the game is up. If I had a good horse, I would ride straight to Maritzburg. I never saw him again. I then saw Surgeon Major Shepard, busy in the depression, treating wounded, this was also the last time I saw him. To return to the fight, our right flank was becoming enveloped by the horn of the Zulus, and the levies were flying before them. All the transport drivers, panic-stricken, were jostling each other with their teams, and the wagons shouting and yelling at their cattle, and striving to get over the neck onto the Rourke's Drift Road. And the red line of the 24th, having fixed bayonets, appeared to have but one idea and that was to defeat the enemy. The Zulu charge came home, and driven with their backs to the rock of the Sandawana and overpowered by about 30 to 1, they sold their lives dearly. The best proof of this is the subsequent description of the Zulus themselves, who, so far from looking on it as a decisive victory, used to relate how their wagons were for days removing their dead and how the country ran rivers of tears, almost every family bemoaning the loss of some near relative. Then this final charge took place. The transport which was in spanned had mostly cleared the neck, and I jumped onto my broken-kneed pony, which had no rest for 30 hours, and followed it, to find on topping the neck a scene of confusion. I shall never forget, for some 4,000 Zulus had come in from behind, and were busy with shield and assegai. Into this mass I rode, revolver in hand, right through the Zulus, but they completely ignored me. I heard afterwards that they had been told by their king, Kitchwayo, that black coats were civilians and not worth killing. I had a blue patrol jacket on, and it is noticeable that the only five officers who escaped, Essex, Cochrane, Gardner, Curling, and myself, all had blue coats. The Zulus throughout my escape seemed to be set on killing natives who had sided with us 
either as fighting levies or as transport drivers. After getting through the mass of Zulus who were busy slaying, I followed in the line of the fugitives. The outer horns of the Zulu army had been directed to meet it at about a mile to the southeast of the camp, and they were still some distance apart when the retreat commenced. It was this gap which fixed the line of the retreat. I could see the Zulus running in to complete their circle from both flanks, and their leading men had already reached the line of the retreat long before I had got there. When I reached the point, I came onto the two guns which must have been sent out of the camp before the Zulu charged home. They appeared to me upset in the donga and to be surrounded by Zulus. Again, I rode through unheeded and shortly after was passed by Lieutenant Coghill, wearing a blue patrol and cord breeches and riding a red roan horse. We had just exchanged remarks about this terrible disaster and he passed on towards Fugitive's Drift. A little further on, I caught up with Lieutenant Curling of the Royal Artillery and spoke to him, pointing out to him that the Zulus were all around and urging him to push on, which he did. My own broken-kneed transport pony was done to a turn and incapable of rapid progress. The ground was terribly bad going, all rocks and boulders, and it was about three or four miles from the camp to the fugitive's drift. When approaching this drift, at at least half a mile behind Coghill, Lieutenant Melville, in a red coat, who with the case colours across the front of his saddle, passed me going to the drift. I reported afterwards that the colour was broken, but as the pole was eventually found whole, I think the casing must have been half off and hanging down. It will thus be seen that Coghill, who was the orderly officer of Colonel Glenn, and Melville, who was an adjutant, did not escape together with the colour. How Coghill came to be in the camp, I don't know. As Colonel Glenn, whose orderly officer he was, was out with Lord Chelmsford's column. I then came to the Fugitive's Drift, the descent to which was almost a precipice. I found there a man in a red coat, badly assegai in the arm, unable to move. He was, I believe, a mounted infantryman of the 24th, named MacDonald. But his name I can't be sure. I managed to make a tourniquet with a handkerchief to stop the bleeding, and got him halfway down, when a shout from behind said, Get on, man! The Zulus are on top of you! I turned around and saw Major Smith of the Royal Artillery, who was commanding the section of guns, and white as a sheet, and bleeding profusely. And in the second, we were surrounded again, and the assegais accounted for poor Smith, my wounded ML friend, and my horse. With help from my revolver, and a wild jump, with help from my revolver, and a wild jump down the rocks, I found myself in the Buffalo River, which was in flood and 80 yards broad. I was carried away, but luckily got hold of the tail of a loose horse, which towed me across to the other bank. I was too exhausted to stick to him. Up to this bank were swarming friendly natives, but I only saw one European, a colonial, and an acting commissariat officer named Hamer, laying there unable to move. I managed to catch a loose horse, and I put him on it and he escaped. 
the Zulus were pouring in a very heavy fire from the opposite bank and dropped several friendly natives as we climbed to the top. No sooner had I achieved this than I saw a lot of Zulus had crossed higher and were running to cut me off. This drove me off to my left, but 20 of them still pursued for about three miles and I managed to keep them off with my revolver. I got in to help Maker at sundown, having done 20 miles on foot from the river. At Helpmaker, I found Huntley of the tent, who had been left there with a small garrison, and also Essex, Cochrane, Curling and Gardner from the field at Asandawana, all busy placing the post in the state of defence. We could see that night that the watchfires of the Zulus, some six miles off, and expected them, and expected them to come on and attack but we knew later that they had turned off to attack Rourke's Drift. I at once took command of the face of the lager, and shall never forget how pleased we weary watchers were when, shortly after midnight, Major Upchers, two companies of the 24th, with Peaton, Palms, Clement and Lloyd, came to reinforce. These two companies had started for Rourke's Drift that afternoon, but had been turned back at Hellmakers by Major Spelding, a staff officer. As he said, Rourke's Drift had been surrounded and captured and that the two companies would share the same fate. Luckily, his information had proved wrong. Well, that concludes the adventures of Horace Smith Dorian and his flight to Sandawana. And, yeah, look... I don't know what you think about that, but every time I see one of these accounts, uh, and I'm thinking of you, Winston Churchill, they they all seem to put themselves in a kind of rosy glow sort of thing. I, look, I'm not saying that he was telling outright porkies, but I would be very surprised if uh, all of what was laid down was in the way it actually happened and we always like to put a bit of a gloss on things particularly when we're under a bit of a stress so I don't know it, there was somewhat of a cloud at the time um, over his head when he wrote it but it, he went on to bigger and better things uh, after Santa Juana he uh, continued on the military and uh, he, he eventually was the uh, officer commanding of the uh, British Expeditionary Forces stationed at Mons in the First World War and he uh, put in an extremely good effort uh, getting them uh, from out of the uh, forefront of the onslaught that was the German army. So we might have a look at that particular, I'm sure that there'll be VCs uh, in that one and he'll pop up again so put him in your back pocket as just an interesting man I think he was a very capable officer uh, just to plug another uh, a different uh, podcast uh, I listened to um, a podcast called uh, Military History um, it's a couple of British chaps who uh, do a uh, a number on him <laughs> they go right through you know, essentially what happened at Sandawana there, and they also uh, detailed what he was able to achieve at Mons as well, sort of thing. And 
uh, I thought it was very, very good. So, yeah, I just decided, okay, well, they've, they've, they've done a, an extremely good job with that, so I will just keep to the account and, and I'll leave the commentary to them because... Uh, I thought they covered it quite well. So if you're still interested in the chap, go and check it out on uh, Military History. Peter Hart. Peter Hart's Military History. Okay, well, after a huge debacle, I've had to uh, change from Wooshka, and I'm now with um, Anchor, um, website hosting, who uh, kindly... Uh, allow me to put this up for free. This is the only way I can um, maintain this. I'm not a particularly uh, financially well-endowed sort of person, so <laughs> I kind of have to do this on a shoestring. So they they were very kind to um, help me set up there. And yes, yeah, so I've had a lot of trouble with um, website hosting over the last 12 months, and hence why we've had such a um, a big gap between the podcasts. So I've put all of the old episodes up. I've also added some additionals, you might have noticed them, uh, called Apology, part, Apology Pods, and they're simply just a bit of extra content that I, I threw in there. I started off doing a tank, tank podcast with a friend of mine, uh, unfortunately, he was unable to continue on with it. So, yes, yeah, so we were, we popped them up and hopefully you'll enjoy them. They're just lighthearted fun. We both are tank nuts and we like talking about tanks and so <laughs> that's pretty well it. We try and, you know, put in uh, an example of uh, where each, we look at each individual tank one at a time so we you know we'll do the Matilda one week and maybe a Sherman next week and but there's only a limited amount of them we didn't uh I think we got 10 or 12 of them or something like that but I'll, I'll continue to put them up sort of thing just to kind of space out when I'm having a bit of uh, a gap between putting my content up so uh yes so next time uh, we, I'm not going to, I haven't re even really decided what we're going to do next time. So, um, I guess we'll find out when I put it up, but I'll go away and have a bit of a think about it. But I think we've had enough of, uh, Zulus and, um, uh, white piff helmets for the time being, and we'll go to something perhaps a little bit more modern, something we can really, um, dig our claws into, so to speak. All right. Okay. Well, with that, you all have a lovely time. Stay safe and keep those masks on. And uh, hopefully the world will turn back onto a, a, a more even axis. All right, guys. Catch you later. Bye-bye.